I'm Alina Utrada, and this is the Anti-Dystopians, the politics podcast about tech. The Anti-Dystopians is hosted and produced by me to provide a space to have conversations about radical and critical approaches to technology. If you'd like to support the production of the Anti-Dystopians, you can subscribe to our email newsletter by following the links below. We also include links to articles, books, or other additional reading mentioned in our conversations, as well as alerts about upcoming episodes, so be sure to take a look. To stop the world from descending into dystopia, subscribe to the Anti-Dystopians wherever you get your podcasts. So hi, everybody. Today, uh, we're coming back from our break, um, and we're going to be talking to Kat Gray, a PhD at the University of Bath, about data, political economy, and global inequalities. Um, So thank you so much for um, being here with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Um, So maybe we can start a little bit with you um, and your background. So what is it that got you interested in in, um, in these issues? And then in particular, kind of what led you to thinking about academia, because I know you've had some experience working in government and public policy as well, and maybe a bit how um, those experiences have differed and maybe inform one another. Yeah, um, so my original academic training was in law, um, but I was always drawn to law and society kind of questions. And I went on to do my postgraduate training in sociology. Um, And before starting my PhD, um, I'd worked in a couple of public policy roles, as you say. Um, so one of these was in uh, European Union gender equality policy, um, and then laterally in an NGO working on tech and human rights issues. Um, and it was there that I really became interested in questions about AI uh, and other related digital technologies um, and what they mean for um, inequality, citizenship, uh, statehood. The world of work and so on um, and at this point I was probably like many people reading um, these kind of early works about um, algorithmic inequalities and, and data justice so things like uh, Virginia Eubank's book Automating Inequality, uh, Cathy O'Neill, people like that um, but it became clear to me that this would be one of the most important spaces for um, human rights advocacy but also Um, various complex public policy problems more generally um, and also um, some of the most interesting sociological puzzles Um, so I was really drawn to it as as a sociologist Um, and yeah during my during the PhD I've been really fortunate that I've been able to do uh, work that's relevant to my research um, but outside of academia Um, so I recently did uh, secondment to the UK civil service and there I was supporting policy development on their um, AI regulatory regime that they're developing um, and this this was really really useful uh, for me as a researcher um, so I study policy and policy processes but it was really valuable to get this insight into central government policy making um, at this time um, so as well as the the more substantive policy side, um, you learn a lot about things like uh, how evidence uh, 
um, is used and including academic research and how that's received by policymakers, um, the everyday work of policymakers and, and the temporalities of, of policymaking. Um, so, yeah, there's there, I mean, there's a lot of emphasis placed on um, interdisciplinarity in AI research and in policy. So it was, it was really interesting to see um, as a sociologist, especially um, how I could bring a more sociological perspective, how that would be received um, and how that could even maybe help us navigate out of some of these really tricky policy problems. Um, so, yeah, I think it's it's been really valuable to have that, um, to have a kind of foot in the policy world as, as well as in academia. Yeah, I, I love how you've like kind of brought those two together. And I feel like at least reading your work, it seems like, you know, you're, you're talking about things that have a lot of like public relevance, um, public policy. And, you know, for me, the same starting the PhD in 2020, uh, you know, the most popular work by far and very public facing um, with Shoshana Zuboff, surveillance capitalism, but also frameworks like data colonialism. And you've written some really excellent pieces that are problematizing the claims um, in these works. Um, so I wonder if maybe you could give us like an overview of, of the arguments that, that you were making, thinking about these concepts. And, and when thinking back, you know, on your experience in academia and in public policy, do you think it's helpful or useful that these books and concepts have ca captured the popular and public attention in this in this way? Yeah, I think so Zuboff's book, uh, her work in particular has been really influential um, and has undoubtedly helped to advance um, debates and thinking about um, particularly the power of companies, uh, including Google. Um, so for, you know, for uh, the uninitiated in her work, uh, Surveillance Capitalism, um, she basically sets out um, this new, what she would describe as a new kind of logic of accumulation. Um, and it's based really on the extraction of the behavioural data that gets generated in the course of our, our daily lives, which are uh, by and large now digitally mediated. Um, so her argument really is that data is a kind of um, a new type of a sort of raw material very similar to materials um, in earlier phases of capitalism, um, so minerals, for example. Um, but this time, uh, material is used to produce um, products, like tradable prediction products, and this in turn allows for new rounds of accumulation. Um, so she describes this as a kind of digital, continual digital dispossession. So the process is sort of replicating or resembling early capitalist processes of enclosure and dispossession. So what under, you know, in, in uh, traditional Marxist terms would be thought of as, as primitive accumulation. So when the social means of production, so how we reproduce our own lives, uh, were transformed into capital in a, under early capitalism. So Zuboff herself, she doesn't really engage with colonialism as an explanatory framework or as, even as a metaphor um, but that's something that comes up in other scholarship so there's a 2016 article for example um, by Thatcher O'Sullivan and Mahmoudi um, and they describe quite a similar process of accumulation um, and they use colonialism as a metaphor but there's not really any attempt to really get at or uncover the colonial histories that are um, at stake in this 
um, in the work of Kildare Machias, so in their influential book um, on data colonialism, um, they present this theory of a whole new social order um, that they call data colonialism. Um, so they are actually using the historical reality of colonialism and draw analogies with um, contemporary data practices. Um, so their analysis really centers on yeah, the similar idea of extractive appropriation of data, um, but they they kind of um, analogize it with uh, prior processes of colonial extraction and um, even say, um, quote, you know, just as historic colonialism, their words, appropriated territory and resources and ruled subjects for profit. Um, so I, I suggest there's a number of things wrong with um, this analysis or that, you know, things that we can challenge in it. Um, I go into more detail um, in my article in um, International Political Sociology, uh, but essentially I would argue that it really does matter how we characterise these relationships between colonialism, colonial ordering and political economy. Um, and there's a really rich body of work in historical sociology looking at um, related questions, um, for example, the work of Gurminder Bambra. Um, so it's it's really, it's potentially it's very problematic to reduce uh, colonialism to something um, that's stable ontologically and it's kind of uh, dynamic, that's quite abstract, um, stable across time and across space um, and outside of concrete historical context. Um, so there's there's a number of problems, I think, with this kind of framework. Yeah, I think it's so interesting to me because I, I used to be a historian. So I, I really came at the study of like tech corporations and technology and things um, from from kind of that perspective. Um, so whenever there's writing about anything like data, you know, fill in the blank, data colonialism, data capitalism or something, I always wonder, like, what's the value of centering data um, in that way, um, you know, for me, I think of data collection as something, you know, with a really long history, you know, that's always been part of his historical processes of control from like the James Scott-esque kind of high modernity and development of states to eugenics to colonialized and racial rule. Um, so, so in your work, do you think there's anything or something um, to value in in centering data in that way does it does it clarify or highlight something about like our current moment or perhaps like the forms of control and rule um, to think through those those power relationships with data um, or do you think it's better to to begin with and think more broadly about systems other systems and logics of say colonialism state control capitalism etc this is a really interesting and central question. Um, and I think there is a lot to be said for the argument that we've maybe focused too much on data as an object of analysis, um, possibly to the detriment of, um, you know, more richer um, analyses of, that bring in uh, related elements like infrastructure. And this is something I think that the critics of, for example, Zuboff have highlighted about her work. Um, but I think it really helps to go back to what it is we're trying to generate knowledge about. Um, and there's not really any point in giving data or any other social object or like any other force or factor um, a privileged position um, in our analyses. 
Um, so I don't necessarily think it needs to be a starting point. Um, but the fact is digital flows of information are now quite fundamental to, to every uh to almost every aspect of social life and are um you know um present in you know most AI technologies that we're concerned with and so on. So um there is a really central place, I think, for um understanding um yeah what data is um how it's embedded in technologies um and i think we need to really continue to theorize that those ontological questions about what data <laughs> what data actually is um and its place within the social ordering of knowledge um and that's why i think this uh kind of very analogical thinking which would posit data as a kind of resource or a natural resource um, is not entirely helpful. Um, I think we need to theorise data far more on its own terms. Um, it has unique attributes, social, socio-material attributes, and the way it interacts with capital or, or value relations, and in particular with knowledge, uh, will definitely not be the same as with, say, gold or oil or, or one of these other uh, resources that people um, use as metaphors. Yeah, that's yeah. The the analogy with golden oil is always um, so interesting to me. Um, I guess to follow up on that, with keeping my historian hat on, um, what if 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 anything do you think that data and data collection and surveillance that we're seeing today is somehow like new or different than historical examples um, or its antecedents? Right. So like thinking about like the invention of statistics or eugenics, you know, do you see that as a, the, the data collection that we're experiencing today as a continuation? Is it a new iteration? Um, kind of what's different in the same, um, you know, is it is it the scale, the actors who are using it? You know, corporations are collecting this data instead of states, political logics and inf informing it, or, or perhaps even like the technologies that are, that it's embedded in. Um, is is you know what if anything is is new here yeah yeah so i think having that historicized analysis is is really key um and i would definitely agree it's important not to see processes as entirely as some kind of rupture from the past um and there there are very clear antecedents and continuities and these are well established i think in a lot of uh the literature um on um you know protect particular in like humanitarian governance for example um you see you know James Scott cited a lot in in these kinds of analyses um yeah particularly in in the techniques um governing te techniques developed under uh systems of colonial rule um but I'd yeah I'd caution against maybe characterizing um the entirety of contemporary data practices in one way or another um, but I think there, there, yeah, there are really important differences, as you say, in the scale, but also in in the speed. So if we think about the computational power available now, um, it's far more more advanced than um, maybe even five or ten years ago, and as well as the actors. Um, so yeah, as we all know, um, gathering huge volumes of information about people and their identities, their bodies, their relationships. It's no longer the preserve of, of the state, if it if it indeed ever was. Um, and I think this has to be studied not just as a question of um, continuity or change um, in terms of data practices, 
um, and how similar or dissimilar they are to, to what came before. Um, but as a feature of transformations in um, statehood and bureaucracy and rule and the nature of political authority and so on, because these, these transformations can in turn then reshape those very data practices. Um, and I think another thing that's perhaps uh, changing or different um, is also the techniques of data analysis. Um, and the modes of reasoning. So I'm not a statistician, but we can go to social studies and histories of statistics and quantification, um, and we can identify shifts, including um, shifts from more broadly frequentist statistics uh, to more Bayesian approaches. So um, traditional frequentist statistics is based on a different sort of understanding of probability, um, as a as an expected frequency, um, but Bayesian statistics is more of a, a kind of probability based on a constantly updated measure. So there is a bit more of a kind of subjective element to it. Um, so this is quite important, um, and I think yeah, it's maybe an example of where like there's along with the scale and the speed and the actors the actual techniques and um, what we can do with them. Um, yeah, there are quite marked differences. Yeah, that's so interesting. So you got me thinking about the way that like forms of political rule and the, and the way the state rules and relates to other entities and individuals and populations change. Um, so I'm wondering, um, like, how do you think about that kind of new form of political rule and I think you know one of the reasons that the quote-unquote data colonialism framework sometimes seems I think at least personally can can seem quite appealing although I 100% agree with with your critiques on it um, but it does capture something about the inequities between global north and global south um, which are which are of course embedded in the histories of colonialism um, so I wonder how how do you think about these kind of like more global relationships and inequities um, and the way that like political rule has been transformed and you know what is that risk as, as you kind of talked about of using um, uh, data colonialism, data colonialism as a framework and ob obstructing uh, obscuring some of the kind of dynamics that are at play and of kind of reducing you know the change to and, and reducing colonialism to extraction yeah, so this is this is kind of right at the heart of um, the main claims I make um, in my work. Um, so I think firstly, um, it's also important to be clear about the fact that, um, you know, there's clearly no clear separation of the past and, and the present um, and the colonial past and, you know, is still present. Um, so not just in the sense of legacies and after effects, um, but for example, for indigenous peoples right now. Um, and I think, so I think the, the trouble with looking at um, colonialism in this way as, as a sort of single dynamic um, that is really just about appropriation or extraction, um, it's, um, it does, it, you know, it reflects some of the violent or unequal appropriation of data, but that's only one dimension. And it's a far more multidimensional process or so set of processes um so you know colonialism also involves other things um 
amongst other things, you know, dispossession of land, um, displacement of people, enslavement, um, but also creates conditions for um, markets and um, the capture of wealth. Um, so it's far more multidimensional, I think. So, um, yeah, that's a kind of important starting point. Um, but I, I use the concept of dispossession because I think it allows us to get at and capture more of that. Um, so we can study how these kinds of processes are differentiated. So why some people and places are targeted and not others or are targeted more than others or in different ways. Um, as well as the productive effects of dispossession. So it's not just a one directional um, taking of value or resource, but it can be thought of as bringing into being new social relations um, and in particular property relations. So I look at the work of um, Robert Nichols, his work on theft, uh, his uh, book, Theft is Property. I think I'm getting it the right way around. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so property is actually generated through the act of the violent act, the dispossession itself. And I think this is really interesting to think about for data. Um, so the dispossession of land and, you know, he um, he describes in his book was not just theft or enrichment and kind of taking of a resource, but it was also the violent imposition of exclusionary uh, property relations and the idea of property as capital. Uh, so it really matters how something becomes a commodity or becomes property in the first place. Um, and it's through these violent processes um, that, you know, these kind of relations come into being. So if we're only looking at it as, <laughs> as data, something that's already there and being taken from, you know, one place to another between different unequal parties, um, we miss a lot of like what is sociologically relevant, I think. Um, and yeah, of course, these are global processes. Yeah, I absolutely love Robert Nichols' book, Theft is Property. Um, I was so happy to see that you had cited it as well in, in your piece. I sometimes feel like a broken record in my department. All I do is go around to people's presentations and I'm like, have you read Theft is Property? And like almost everybody <laughs> yeah. has. <laughs> yeah, I, like, I recommended it or it's like the third time I recommended it. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I definitely don't have a second question for my colleagues. So yeah, I guess. So I, I, I love like I it was so interesting and kind of generative to think about um, to, and to read your work about thinking of data as dispossession. So I wonder if following on kind of from the um, onto the kind of not real world effects, but like thinking of of examples in the real world um, as representing what, what we're talking about. How do you think about how these harms and global inequities manifest themselves in a really tangible way? Um, like, you know, within uh, journalism and, and and news stories, of course, like the go-to kind of touch points are often things like, you know, Kenyan Gidgurvers being exploited for Facebook's content moderators, uh, racialized communities being surveilled by apps and then that data, you know, given over to the police or things like in Myanmar or um, in these sort of um, places where there's like war and oppression happening that, you know, sites like Facebook don't really spend that much time um, content thinking about content moderation or about the ways that their platform are being um, utilized um, by political actors and politically um, in ways that like cause and enable violence. Um, 
So, so are those the ways, the examples that you would think about um, when thinking about the harms of of data, um, and and or where where do you think about where this this power and violence manifest? Yeah, so I, I think we can definitely observe the historically generated patterns of exploitation um, and other processes in things like how um, work is distributed. So, um, yeah, you mentioned, um, you know, precarious low-wage work, uh, hazardous work uh, in the content moderation and annotation and things like that that's undertaken in Kenya, but also many other parts of the world. Um, so I think, yeah, these the distribution of of that is is kind of patterned by um, similar sorts of um, lines of exploitation, um, but also in the, the you know the kind of more the, the metropoles. Um, that's you know if you look at how, how work is um, the type of work. Um, uh, Dale Gabriel, for example, has done really good work on um, on demand gig work in London. And how race is a structuring force in the platformization of the economy. Um, but yeah, outside of outside of work, I think there are many other examples in my work. I've looked at um, governance of global mobility, so the violence that's enacted through bordering and, and migration management, um, particularly in Europe. Um, so yeah, these are the kinds of examples I think of of you know we could call them like colonial violence um, that are relevant to um, data driven technologies and and yeah related phenomena. Yeah, that leads really well, like nicely on to my next question, which is you know one of the things you wrote about was like the importance of not bracketing race in these discussions. So I wonder um, in your framework, how does data and the logics of these sort of surveillance regimes work to enable and produce race and racialized surveillance and control as, as you're talking about with work and gig workers too. Um, yeah, so this is something I try to attend to in my work. Um, I think some work on surveillance and um, particularly works on surveillance capitalism and even data colonialism that we talked about before um, do tend to um, not maybe not entirely bracket race, um, but I think kind of unmoor it from this sort of the central analysis. Um, it's not really enough to look at how um, different people are disproportionately affected. There's more than disproportionality to to this. Um, so I think we need to take really seriously then um, how dispossession, as you know, as I would conceptualize it is differentiated, including um, through race, but, um, you know, there's, there's other kind of vectors of, of difference. Um, um, so I think I've read the works of people like Ruha Benjamin, um, who's working on um, the sociology of race and technology. I think people, lots of people will be aware of, of her, her really important work, um, and many writers in the Black radical tradition. Um, so I think this is really important um, to, to literature and thought to engage with, to try and understand um, why it is that and how it is that um, technologies and these, um, yeah, violent kind of enclosures or um, 
yeah, experiment patterns of experimentation, experimental use, for example, are so often um, tar- very targeted towards highly racialized domains. Um, so policing um, and, and, and bordering and migration. Um, so this, for example, um, really helps us to understand and, and maybe be, be less perplexed by um, the exclusion of um, people on the move uh, and criminalise people from some of the provisions of the proposed EU AI Act. Um, so there's there's kind of exemptions, very explicit carve-outs, um, and this is something you see in, in lots of other kind of digital legislation and data protection legislation and so on. Um, so it really helps us understand that and not see it as some kind of um, oversight or it's just, um, you know, that there, there's not been strong enough advocacy. It's, it's, it's potentially a much more uh, fundamental feature. Um, and I think this analysis also helps us to understand, um, you know, the process, uh, the processual sort of dimension of this and how race is, is remade in the present through the application, um, the unequal application of, of technologies. Yeah, to pick up on the EU AI legislation and kind of like policy responses, um, I wonder, you know, the, one of the kind of proposals or claims we, we you, you know when you touched on this in one of your early answers um about how we should think about um data or 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 changing the legal frameworks around how we think about data in order to kind of better capture um and protect um people from what from these kind of regimes um, is, you know, thinking about data as a commodity, as you said, you know, like data is the new oil um, or thinking of data as property um, in a in a more uh, serious sense of, of thinking about like, oh, if you own your own data, then Facebook couldn't extract it from you necessarily without compensation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so do you think these these two kind of things of thinking as data as a commodity or thinking of data as property are helpful frameworks both kind of for understanding what data is doing or, or what it is um, and how it's impacting people, as well as whether you think this is kind of a useful um, framework for a public policy response, or are there other ways that we should be thinking about data when we think about like, oh, what's the sort of, um, uh, not solution, but response to this? Yeah, so yeah, as I mentioned, I think like the these kind of metaphors and descriptions have very limited analytical purchase um and it's yeah there's it's probably better to to think more um to, to think less generically about about data and its qualities um and on on the question of whether data is or isn't a commodity um i found the work of bob jessop really illuminating um in this kind of question uh so he he draws on the work of um carl polani uh, to think about knowledge. So um, his, he uses uh, Polanyi's concept of a fictitious commodity um, and uses that to analyse um, you know, where knowledge under information, information capitalism fits with this, um, or the information economy, I think he calls it. Uh, so fictitious commodity, this is um, the concept that was um, set out by Carl Polanyi in his book, The Great Transformation. Um, so he he argued there that labor and I think land and money um, can be thought of as as fictitious commodities. 
So they're they're commodities, but they're fictitious in the sense that they exist already in a pre-commodified form. Um, so labor already exists as our natural capacity for creative activity or intellectual activity. Um, but it nonetheless comes to be treated as if it did exist to be exchanged. So that's how um, the existence of markets and things like labor come to be naturalized. Um, so I think this is really this is helpful, um, partly because it, you know, like this type of analysis reminds us like economic value isn't just a kind of eminent natural quality of a given entity. There are processes <laughs> that um, something has to undergo. Um, and it, you know, data can take on a variety of different um, economic forms. Um, so there's, yeah, you could kind of apply this framework of, of, in some cases, data is maybe a free kind of commodified form um, or a fictitious or a quasi commodity. Um, but it, there's sort of different levels of abstraction involved, I think. And it, it really depends on the kind of social processes that it undergoes. Um, so it has far more complex and unfolding um, relations and attributes, I think, and can't really be easily characterized as, as a commodity or a non-commodity. It's, it's far more multidimensional um, and fluid and changing. Um, so yeah, we think we need, really what needs to happen is drawing more attention to yeah how data is actually generated, extracted, exchanged. Um, and there are many uh, similarities to, to other objects of uh, commodification, um, but we do need to think about what's distinctive about it um, and the you know the conditions under which it's generated, the mechanisms, all the different characteristics. Um, and one of the really important ways that data is different potentially from other things is um, you can think of it as maybe as as it's always already abstract. <laughs> so um, unlike something like labor or um, land or, or money. Um, the yeah, like the it, it it's pre-commodified form, as it were, is is quite different. It's always already um kind of a, a representation or a representational claim about reality. Um, arguably, yeah, money money is maybe quite similar to that. Um, but yeah, there are different processes involved, I think, and it's it's quite difficult then to <laughs> to say something's either a commodity or not. Um, and on the question of property, yeah, I think that's like a um, distinct but related question. There's been some really good work. Um, I'm forgetting the author's name. <laughs> uh, Salome something. Um, her work. I'll link it. I'll link it in the. Great. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, embarrassing. Uh, yeah. So that, and then like more, like I guess, like um, empirical work about um, yeah how people understand their data as property. Like yeah, there's there's a lot more kind of. Uh, interesting work than the mine on that question um but I think yeah it's not so much that it's a free I wouldn't really say commodity or properties is necessarily a, a useful framework or a starting point it's more we can look at how processes of operatization or commodification are present or help to understand like what's going on with data um yeah yeah I feel like the other thing, I mean, I think I, I completely agree. And I feel like the other thing that's interesting about that is that these kind of propertized or commodified forms are often 
have to be or will be kind of backed up by the state and the state accept these frameworks. And, you know, a lot of the responses often, I mean, we're talking about the EU bill, um, you know, are kind of top-down state-led, multi, I mean, EU is not a state, but, you know, multi-international organization-led. So I wonder, um, aside from, like, top-down state regulation, are there kind of, like, more local or anarchical or almost grassroots forms of resistance as you see it um, to these, like, data processes that we've been discussing? Um, well, this is something I'd definitely be interested in in learning more about myself. Um, and I'd be interested in how existing grassroots social movements, for example, are um, contending with technological dimensions of of other things like climate change or um, you know, anti-borders organizing, for example. Um, and I could be wrong because it's not really my area of expertise, but my sense is that there's been more contestation in the form of um, legal mobilizations. So, for example, groups bringing, trying to bring um, judicial reviews of government decisions. Um, and I think in the UK, in a way, I think there's quite limited visibility for more critical or radical civil society groups working on these issues. Um, but then, you know, going back to what you were saying, uh, your example of um, uh, content workers in Kenya, uh, there are examples of more classical forms of um, labour resistance and collective action taking shape. So unionisation of workers. Um, and I, I suspect we'll see more of that. Um, but it's yeah, it's not something that I, I specifically research. I wonder too, I have to ask you since, you know, AI is always kind of um, in the center of public attention and particularly now chat GPT and these large language models um, are, you know, always kind of talked about in the media as well as in academic research. Um, so I wonder, do you think, I mean, we would talk about data more broadly, but do you think um, AI and the way that these kind of technical regimes are centered is the right thing to center in, in the public conversation. I'm thinking about, especially coming from like a very academic intellectual background and thinking about these these things intellectually and, and academically, um, do, you, do you feel as if the public discussion is focusing on the right track, so to speak? Um, or do we, do we need to be asking kind of different questions? Yeah, so I think in some ways, like the the kind of uptick in popular discourse and interest in AI um, is good. And I think um, with it, there's been more scrutiny, um, perhaps of governments and um, of other actors with um, what's going on. Um, I do, I think hype is not an understatement, though. Um, and we're, we are at risk of uh, allowing like quite a technologically determinist narrative um to to take hold um and there's a kind of maybe a false presentation of novelty um many of the sort of latest round of um yeah for example open ai's uh, gpt series um they're not entirely new and that the architecture and the technology has has been around for a number of years um and i think this in turn allows for this um 
this perhaps this sort of misdirection or overstated or um uh yeah perhaps not like robust analysis um of things like existential risk and um you know the idea that there's a kind of runaway inexorable um path that AI is going to take and that that it's inevitable that it's it's the future um so this is obviously associated with like massive concentrations of power um so I would say I'm I'm more concerned with that and the yeah that kind of political economy of um yeah the markets in in, in digital technologies and AI um than you know these kinds of catastrophic catastrophic events as such um but yeah anyone really working on this field certainly from the same sort of perspective I am would probably say that um, many of the you know the risks and the harms are a lot more mundane um, and we know that from like all the examples we have of um, discrimination and surveillance and and so on um, so I think there's there's kind of not really necessarily a right track or a wrong track um, I think people are asking uh, some of the right questions um, but there's potentially problems, these kind of conceptual problems around how we think of what an AI harm or an AI risk actually is uh, that conflates so many different things and means that, um, yeah, we're maybe not looking at um, the, the more obvious or more mundane problems that have been around for, for quite some time. Um, yeah, so I think there's yeah, it's, it's good that there's more discourse around it and, and maybe more scrutiny, um, but we need to have a much better um, understanding of like the interests at stake, I think, in, in a lot of these conversations. Yeah, I feel like there's, um, I'm sure somebody else said it besides me, but the the quote, like, we think they want to tell us that like the, the harm of AI is that like you're going to get artificial general intelligence and robots are going to take over the world. But actually the way AI is really harming people is like automatic bureaucracies with no humans involved deny like welfare benefits or something and that and that's like quite a in a as you say mundane or almost boring kind of manifestation of of AI but it's extremely harmful in a way that's like not very exciting or Hollywood-esque um yeah I think that partly it's maybe the um we think of the attributes of AI as and the kind of harmful ones are the ones that give rise to like the need for regulatory intervention, um, you know, autonomy, the idea of autonomy and, and that like technology or AI is inherently autonomous, but it's, you know, autonomy isn't <laughs> an, inherent an inherent feature of uh, a given tool or a given system. Um, it's completely contextually dependent. The same system can be used or um, integrated with more or less autonomy or automaticity. Um, and yeah, like you say, it's the the often the operation of the automaticity of a technology without oversight or um, opportunities for intervention or redress and so on, or you know no um, deliberate you know upfront deliberation or notification that something's being used. Um, there's all sorts of other reasons, but yeah, I think um, it's partly how we. Um, frame AI as inherently autonomous. Yeah. So I guess thinking about kind of your experience in public policy as well, 
Um, you know, one of the things we often hear from like these tech corporations is that like regulators or states or politicians can't keep up um, with the technology. Um, and that's why, you know, the regulations are misguided, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so from your experience, like, do you think this is true? Like, what are the biggest kind of challenges facing the implementation of of regulations? Yeah, there's this this idea that regulators or government can't keep up um, and, yeah, really powerful narratives of, um, you know, state capacity, I think, that are present in this. Um, so there's this idea of kind of regulatory lag that you hear about a lot. And in some ways, I think it's quite an effective discursive strategy um, that maybe does work to obscure, um, yeah, the, the real issues and um, the possibilities for policy. Um, and, I, you know, you know, I don't said I don't really like analogies too much, but um, I think we can look at other sort of high tech sectors uh, like nuclear energy, for example. And that helps us to see that, OK, we we don't need to allow AI to be completely exceptionalized like this. Um, you know, there's there's a much broader range of things that are possible or types of regulatory architecture intervention that might be available to us. Um, we just need to maybe think a bit more expansively and, yeah, learn lessons from um, other regulatory domains. I think there's a lot more that can be done, um, not just in the kind of scholarship and, and practice on like regulatory governance, but I think this is where, uh, for example, STS, science and technology studies, can add a lot to these debates. Yeah, it's like, again, I'm not the person who first came up with that, but it's like, can you imagine the banking industry saying to the Congress or US Congress or whatever, like, ah, you just don't understand, you can't keep up, so you shouldn't regulate us. Um, yeah. <laughs> so this is uh, the question I ask all first-time anti-dystopians guests. So hopefully it'll be the first of many. Um, but if you could give one piece of advice to anyone, so that could be Facebook or fellow academics or the EU um, or the UK civil service, um, what would it be and why? So I'm not sure I really believe in giving out uh, generalized advice. So I would possibly instead make more of a plea. Um, I think all of us in academia at different levels, um, we all encounter forces that try to turn knowledge into a competition. Um, so we're encouraged to think of our work in terms of comparative metrics, citations, rankings, etc. Um, and this is really bad for a number of reasons. Um, it obviously pits researchers against each other, makes everyone feel a bit rubbish about their own work and their own achievements compared to others. Um, it undermines academic integrity, potentially. You want to get your work out quickly to get hedge, you might cut corners, there's ethical issues there. Um, but more fundamentally, I think it, it limits um, the kind of knowledge that gets to be produced. So Rishi Sunak, for example, has recently spoken about cracking down on so-called low-value degrees. Um, and this, of course, would be measured entirely in market value terms. Um, so there's this agenda, I think, um, that really degrades what learning is and what it can be. Um, and in AI research specifically, there's already a very worrying set of imbalances um, in wealth and resources. Um, and this is between universities 
and private companies that are producing a lot of knowledge and research about AI, including social scientific knowledge. Um, and there's obviously a conflict of interest there uh, between public and private interests. Um, so I'd say much of what's really at stake in AI is about the politics of knowledge. Um, so I think to address that, we need to be working more collectively, asking critical questions like um, those posed on this podcast um, and working together to push against and find alternatives to this really um, hyper-competitive environment. <laughs>